The coronavirus crisis will end. We know this for a certainty, although we don't know when or how. There's another thing we can be equally certain of. However long it takes, and however the crisis eventually does end, the long-term impact of the coronavirus crisis will be felt in the fields of politics and culture for many, many years to come. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, and in this episode of Blind Politics, we will take a predictive stab in the dark, even in the midst of this crisis, as what the post-corona new normal might look like. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another thrilling and stimulating episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Politics and Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or of the Robertson School. So I'm addressing today a topic that we are going to be covering in more detail at an upcoming event from the Robertson School. So the first week of May, the week of May, Monday, May 4th, we are going to be doing a webinar, a series of webinars, looking at the impact of the COVID-19 crisis in terms of politics. And this is geared at sort of political professionals, campaigning, all those types of things. If you look on our Facebook page, you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics, Twitter at Blind P-O-L Nolte, and Instagram at Blind Politics. You can also rate and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, etc., via our main feed at anchor.fm. And if you check on our Facebook page, you can see more information about this webinar. We'll post links to some of the promotional material for that in the show notes. And I'll have a couple of other podcasts in the run-up to that that will hopefully address that. Hopefully we'll, we'll have more information in those podcasts. Might even try to get one or more of the guests that are going to be taking part in that event to come on the pod. So we'll just have to see how kind of how that goes. But I wanted to give my take on this question, and I think it's one of the more interesting questions that we face right now, of what the new normal is going to look like in terms of post-corona. So we're in the middle of the coronavirus crisis right now, and it's hard right now to see what the end date is going to look like. While the optimistic picture is that we'll get things somewhat more under control June or July, the more pessimistic or sort of mid-range picture is, you know, we're looking at probably sometime in spring 2021. And then, of course, some people have said, you know, we might never get a vaccine for this. I suppose that's theoretically possible, but that outcome seems sort of unlikely, just given the sheer amount of focus that there has been on this disease from the epidemiology community right now. You know, people talk about the Ebola as sort of the the predecessor of this, you know, it, it took years, decades perhaps, to develop a, a vaccine for Ebola. You know, AIDS we still don't have. But I I can't imagine any modern disease that, that has had or will have as much research and funding and attention paid to it and resources devoted to finding a cure for it as coronavirus, at least in the, mo- in, the, in, the in terms of the modern medical establishment. So I am reasonably confident, reasonably optimistic that we will see some sort of vaccine deployed sometime in the next 18 months. And so what that means is that this is going to, this particular crisis is going to come to an end. We also don't know what contours of the crisis we're going to see between now and then. In other words, is it going to be a slow 
turn away? Is it going to be sort of a slow getting back to something that looks normal? Or is it going to be sort of a rapid transition? We are assuming it's probably going to be more slow, more gradual, and things are sort of gradually going away from, from the sort of shock treatment that we've adopted in the United States and other places. So what I want to do today, though, is look beyond, you know, look beyond the, the unknowns that we have and try to envision what the new, how the new normal is going to change. We're going to be able to talk about pre-corona and post-corona politics, pre-corona and post-corona culture in the same way, but actually probably to a much greater degree that we can talk about pre and post 9-11. 9-11 was a one-time event that happened on one day. It was a shocking event. It transformed America in, one, in many ways, but really the event itself happened in the span of a couple of hours. When we're talking about this coronavirus crisis, we're already talking about something that just in New York City, which was, you know, the main site where there was there was the most impact, right, in 9-11. You know, New York City's been locked down since mid-March, at least. So we're already talking about a month, maybe a month and a half. It's going to be at least two months. Some of us have been in quarantine since the beginning of March, or pretty close to the beginning of March from this. So, and this is global, right? Coronavirus has been something that's affected all of the world, not just the United States, not just one city. So I would say the impact is going to be much, much greater than the impact of 9-11. And think about the, what the impact of 9-11 was on American politics. Overnight, our foreign policy was reoriented. If you look at the beginning of the Bush administration, they were talking about no nation building at home. Their focus was at least as much on China as, as it was on the Middle East. And ironically enough, one of the things the Bush administration was pushing for was a rebalancing of our relationship with China. Who knew? Another thing the Bush administration was, was pushing for, by the way, just a side note, was apparently President Bush... George W. Bush was very concerned about the possibility of a pandemic. You know, he's the one who ordered that we should have a national stockpile. You know, we, we may be approaching the point in history where it's time to start reevaluating the Bush administration. I know this is going to be very difficult for all of my millennial friends who cut their teeth protesting the Iraq war and think that Bush is Nixon, Hitler 2.0 or whatever. But it may be time, and I would argue it's sort of past time, to reevaluate Bush 43 as a president. And I think he's going to get the Truman treatment. You know, Harry S. Truman was not really regarded as a great president at the time. He followed someone who was much more popular, much more well-beloved, particularly of the elite. And over time, his reputation has improved. And I suspect that Bush 43 is going to get the same treatment. So some of that reevaluation may may start to happen here. I think that we're probably still another 10, 15 years out from that. But I think it's going to happen. I think it's inevitable because we move past the, the moments of partisanship. And we start to be able to see things in, in the review and see things really in a much better context. So, so much for 9-11, right? So, foreign policy was very, very different afterwards. Laser-like focus on the Middle East and the Muslim world. An intense focus on democracy and democratization. A real sense that the policies in the past in the Middle East had not worked. Culturally, you have kind of the optimistic, you know, happy-go-lucky, everything is, is good 90s. In the 2000s, you know, you see a little bit more of a cultural shift to culture, culture that's a little bit more anxious. You know, there's, there's a little bit more of a counterculture that starts to emerge, particularly around the Iraq War and so on and so forth. And so that kind of dynamic, that blueprint has been with us from that time period. The other thing that has been a trajectory that we've seen growing more and more intense over time, and this really kind of starts in in the 90s, is an acceleration of partisan divides. And when I, when I say it starts in the 90s, it starts because 
for the first time, you're seeing most of the conservatives sorted into one party and most of the, the liberals or progressives sorted into another party. Back in 1992, there were still a lot of what we call blue dog Democrats, Democrats who are pro-life, culturally conservative, you know, maybe a little bit more union oriented in the South, in the Midwest, and so forth. Most of those folks are gone. There were also a decent number of pro-choice, culturally more liberal, but fiscally conservative Republicans in the Northeast. Those folks are also gone. So politics has become sorted along lines of culture to a degree that it was not previously. And that started in the 1990s. It started with the culmination of two movements that really came into their own in the late 80s to early 90s, and that is the LGBT rights movement on one side and the religious right or sort of the groups like the Christian Coalition on the other, right? So it's not that one side is driving all the polarization. It's that you're starting to see both sides in the culture war get more organized, equipped in the 90s. The cultural and political sort continues in the 2000s and has been really, really intense in the 2010s. Okay, so those are sort of the the dynamics that we see post 9-11, some of them pre-existing things that have already intensified, others new things that are sort of interjected. So what are we going to be looking at in terms of coronavirus and its impact in terms of foreign policy, culture, and domestic policy in the United States? Let's start with culture. And I want to start with culture because I think, unlike 9-11, I think the primary impact of of, of COVID and of everything that we've been through is going to be cultural rather than political. I think there will be huge political effects, but I think the most dramatic effect that we're going to see is cultural. Why do I say that? Because 9-11 was a primarily political event. In other words, most people experience 9-11 in a political sense, unless you had a family member who was at the Pentagon, family member who was at the World Trade Center. You know, you were in an area where you were interacting with folks that had direct experience with this. Your experience of 9-11 was mostly through a political lens of this is changing the politics of the country. Our main experience of COVID is not political. It is social. We are being isolated from friends and family physically. We are having to change in massive ways our lifestyle. We have essentially put our economy into a medically induced coma to try to prevent this disease from spreading further and faster. And so the cultural impact, I think, is going to be huge. And it's a, it's a cultural impact in the sense of Americans, I think, were by and large convinced that nothing could really touch us. Nothing could really affect us that, you know, we had things pretty good and we could just continue going on. Uh, things could sort of just continue as they were moving moving forward inevitably, unless you were somebody who was very politically active. And sort of the, the Pew Forum and, and other groups have more in common as another group that has, has done this, have sort of broken down American political attitudes into what they call hidden tribes. More in common calls this hidden tribes. Form has a different schema for some of the breakdowns they've done. And what you find is that politics has been sort of dominated by polarized, highly educated white people who are very politically active and very politically polarized. And they already thought the country is going to hell in the hand, ba- in hand basket, either because their side was not in power or because the other side was trying to prevent their side from doing the righteous things that they've always wanted to do, right? So those groups were not necessarily looking at this as a, this is sort of a great thing that you know, everything's going along fine. Everybody else is sort of disengaged from politics, either because they don't see much impact on their lives or because they think that things are basically fine or, you know, things are about as good as they can get. And, you know, there's no reason to step forward. Well, I can tell you now, politics has impacted your life. The decisions of your national leaders, the decisions of your local leaders in particular, have impacted your life in a major way, regardless of who you are, 
the decisions that those officials made based on the best available information they had have had a huge impact on your life. That's the first thing. The second thing is that these global crises, these global effects can and will change your life and change the way in which you live, the way in which you engage in economic activity. Every aspect of your life can be affected by these types of things. And, you know, the more we start to look into these pandemics, it's kind of like 9-11 in the sense of one of the things that you looked at post 9-11 is, wow, looking back on this, this could have happened at any time and we've gotten unreasonably lucky a number of times, which is the only reason this didn't happen sooner. That's even more the case with a lot of these pandemics. So what's the impact going to be on culture? I think what we are going to see is the cultural impact of a greater belief in the fragility of our way of life. In other words, there's an under, there's there's just I think inevitably going to be an understanding that a pathogen that comes out of a city in China that most people have never heard of despite the fact that it's fairly substantial, you know, as big as New York City, can affect every aspect of your life and can essentially for a time period take away the way of life that you have there's a sense of fragility, I think, that comes with that. How do people respond to that fragility? Well, the closest parallel that we have in recent history is the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. And what what do you see as the responses to that? Well, the, the most immediate response that you see in the United States is the Roaring Twenties. So once the pandemic is over, we see an outbreak of rapid, sometimes uncontrolled, sometimes not always well thought out economic growth, and a sort of general sense of hedonism. <laughs> those, those are the two things for which the 1920s are often best known. So that's one possible outcome, right? Sort of buy everything, massive consumption, massive hedonism, because, you know, all, all of this demand has been pent up. People are going to be having cabin fever for, you know, however long this happens. And, you know, at some point, if you have a vaccine, if you have the, you know, COVID in the rearview mirror, if you've built up the capacity where people aren't as concerned about it, you know, people are going to just go nuts in that sense. So that's one possibility is hedonism. Along with hedonism, you would expect to see elements of cultural escapism. In other words, for the hedonists, if you were inclined to be somebody who was interested in sort of horror fiction, pandemic fiction, zombie fiction, anything like that in the past, you're probably not as interested in that now. So if you were a filmmaker hoping to make your next version of The Walking Dead, you might want to put that on hold. Because at least for the first couple of years, I think hedonism is going to be the dominant paradigm and people are going to want escapist stuff. People are going to want something that takes them away from and out of the, the, the reminder of what they've just been through. I would expect you're going to see a lot more fantasy, a lot more sort of escapist oriented fantasy. I would expect you're going to see, you know, a lot of rom-coms, you know, a lot of sort of nostalgia pieces maybe focused on the times that people thought, you know, when, when everything was good and rosy before, you know, the, the 90s. And so, you know, one, one way of thinking about this from a cultural perspective is there's a musical called Cabaret. And Cabaret is really sort of focusing on this, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, we may die, sort of time period between World War One and the Great Depression in Germany, where the economy is still pretty fragile, but there's this sort of sense of, of hedonism. This tends to be a normal human reaction to tragedy. So we should expect a certain degree of this, at least, if not a very, very high degree of this. At the same time, I think there's going to be a countervailing trend of apocalypticism, right? So there's going to be a subset of people who, realizing this fragility, feel like everything could be taken away at a moment's notice. 
you know, everything, the, the normal world, the real world could vanish at a moment's notice. And so there's going to be a real sense of sort of foreboding. And so you're, I would expect there to be, in some of this cultural product coming out, sort of a grim undertone of everything could vanish at, at the, the drop of a hat. And so I think there's going to be a certain amount of anxiety about that. And some people may sort of, you know, lean into that anxiety and sort of, you know, you may see cultural products that speak to that. Um, I think that's not going to be the dominant strand because I think it's hard for people to maintain that attitude, for, for most people to maintain that attitude for a long period of time. But that is going to be sort of a subset of the cultural reaction, I think. For the most part, culturally, people are going to want to, for, you know, adapt those things that can be adapted, but to forget about what ha- what they have been through, to sort of put it in the past, put it behind them, move on and, and really move into sort of a more escapist, hedonist, you know, consum- hot, heavy consumption, you know, let the good times roll type of attitude. So that is the predominant thing that I would expect to see happen culturally. By the way, that may happen culturally even if the economy doesn't come back to the degree that we're hoping or as quickly as we're hoping, you know, even if it's a slower economic recovery. I think you're going to see some of that. The other possibility, particularly if that economic response is a little bit slower, is a little bit more sluggish, and there is more of a depression, is you could see the emergence of new radical ideologies. We've already been in a populist moment. I don't think that's going to go away, particularly insofar as elites have been not always responding in the most effective way, and often through no fault of their own, because you're trying to respond in a situation where you don't always have perfect information, and that always makes it more difficult. But there might be an even increased mistrust of elites, increased mistrust of experts, different forms of sort of radical ideology emerging across the the world, or in, in sort of intensifying across the world. Some of it will be sort of utopian, others will be more sort of grim, apocalyptic oriented, but I do think that we could be looking at some serious political upheaval in terms of ideology moving forward from this. It's hard to say what that will look like, because you know, it, it, that's something that's very contingent and very much depends on who comes out of the gate with what ideas early on. But I do expect to see some new political movements that look very, very different from anything that we've seen before. One thing that I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen emerge in the United States, but I think there's an appetite for it, and I think it's probably going to happen at some point, is some sort of combination of social conservatism and economic populism. Something that is sort of pro-life, pro-gun, pro welfare system, pro-union, anti-trade, you know, a little bit more protectionist, but also, you know, more open to a more generous welfare system. I wouldn't go so far, quite so far as to say socialism, but, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think it's impossible that you get somebody who says, you know, we need to ban abortion after a heartbeat is detectable, and we need to also force corporations to put workers on their board. Those two things aren't necessarily incompatible. You know, we could see somebody saying, you know, we need more public morality, and part of that public morality is we need to punish corporations if they're dealing with China, or we need to punish corporations if they're acting in other ways that we think are not in the national interest or not in the interest of the poor. You know, punish corporations if they're getting rid of jobs, right? So imagine the economic policies uh, that, that draw a little bit from Bernie Sanders, a little bit from Andrew Yang, and the social conservatism of you know the, the, the old traditional religious right. I think something like that is probably going to emerge. 
There are historical precedents for this. There's the social conservative populism of the social credit movement in Canada. There, there have been social conservative economic populist movements in other parts of the world. Christian democracy is, you know, social con- socially conservative economically. It's sort of a little bit more focused on preserving the roles of mediating structures. And so I would expect something like that to emerge as a new force in American politics, whether that's within a, within one of the parties, whether that's as a separate third party, I'm not sure. I don't really think that there's going to be a fiscally conservative, socially liberal backlash, you know, people who are advocating for sort of, um, you know, less restrictive abortion and more free trade. First of all, I think the people who have that ideology are already a small sub, uh, segment who could probably fit in a broom closet somewhere. There's just not a lot of interest in that on a, st- a statistical level. The, the reason that we hear more from candidates like that is because that's where the rich people tend to be. So they tend to be overrepresented in the top 1% of economic earners, people that want you know, fiscal conservatism and social liberalism. But outside of that group, there's not a lot of support for that ideological mix. So if there's any kind of new populist movement that emerges, it's probably going to be socially more conservative, economically more populist. And if it's going to be successful, it's probably going to be a little bit more moderate at least. On, on issues of race, because you're going to have to go beyond one specific racial group if you're going to make that coalition work. So those are a couple of cultural factors. In terms of domestic politics, I already mentioned the idea of sort of new ideologies moving, emerging, possibly some types of, of radicalism. I do think that what happens in the 2020 presidential election is going to definitely determine which of the political parties has their impending civil war. Both the Democrats and the Republicans are, are like well overdue for massive internal ideological fights on skates. For the Republicans, this would be you know a fight between sort of the populist and anti-populist elements of the party. For the you know, and, and that's been brewing. And if Trump loses, everybody who doesn't like Trump's populism for any number of reasons is going to come knives out trying to take back the party. And those who want to sort of try to preserve that more Trumpian populist element are going to be on the defensive because their guy will have just lost, but they're going to be trying to hold their ground. And it'll be very interesting to see how surviving Republican politicians adjust to that. Now, if Biden loses, then you're going to have a very, very invigorated socialist movement within the Democratic Party. We're going to be making the argument that we tried moderate Hillary Clinton, we tried moderate Joe Biden, and now it's time for the revolution because clearly the moderates haven't done it. And so... Look for the Democratic Socialists and Justice Democrats and the Squad and all those types of people to really make a play for control of the party. The problem those groups have is that there are two separate constituencies to which they are trying to appeal. One is sort of the social progressive constituency, you know, the sort of woke constituency. And the other is economic populism and sort of, you know, the the idea of economic populism and and something that looks more like democratic socialism or social democracy. It's not clear to me that actually yoking those two things is a winning electoral strategy. So So you may even see an internal fight within the left, particularly if Biden tries to be more moderate on economic issues and further to the left on social issues, which seems to be the direction that Hillary Clinton went in 2016. She was to the left of Obama on social issues in a number of ways, didn't try to reach out to evangelicals, didn't try to strike any kind of moderate tone, but was certainly more fiscally conservative. And if that's the direction Biden goes, there are going to be a lot of people in the Democratic Party who say, let's go full Bernie on economics, but let's 
be a party that's a little bit more open and welcoming to people that are pro-life, pro-gun, you know, have more traditional values, but might agree with us on economics. So there's going to be a hard push, I think, for that. I don't think it's going to go anywhere because I think the regulatory capture of donors in the Democratic Party and, you know, major, major organizations in the Democratic Party, put it this way, the interest groups that actually have the money in the Democratic Party are perfectly fine saying that, you know, abortion should be an absolute constitutionally protect, uh, protected right, and we should amend the Constitution to say that anyone can get an abortion at any time for any reason, then they will, moving even slightly to the left on economics. So the, the corporate Democrats, the, you know, plus, plus also the activist groups from, from both the pro-choice and pro-LGBT sides, they are going to want to continue to move the party left on social issues but they are not going to go, want to go Bernie's way on economic issues because it potentially would hurt their bottom line. That's where the leadership of the party is. And the Democrats still have a much more effective party apparatus than the Republicans. So I expect a real fight within the Democratic Party, both in terms of people advocating that they, the party needs to go harder to the left. But then which way do you move to the left? And who do you try to appeal to beyond the left? Are you trying to appeal to downscale voters who are a little bit more traditional or, you know, try to just continually maximize your support among socially progressive folks? And so, you know, where and how Biden loses is going to be, I think, very determinative in that if Biden loses. Okay, so we're going to see upheaval in politics in terms of domestic politics and domestic policy. I don't see many specific issue changes that are going to be controversial coming out of of COVID. So for example, we should expect massively increased appropriations for pandemic preparation at a federal, state, and local level. We should expect that everybody's going to be planning to how to prevent the next problem. We should expect that there's going to be a huge bipartisan commission that investigates what went wrong and how it went wrong and all that kind of stuff. We should expect there will be fights over how do we streamline this and how do we make this more efficient in the future. By the way, I think that there's going to be a lot of trying to confirm priors on this, but I think one of the things that may, if you're trying to look at this objectively from a policy perspective, it may come out that you need both private and public actors in healthcare, especially in a healthcare crisis. And that crisis and and what worked and what didn't in the crisis may actually end up shaping the way in which the healthcare system is reformed if it is reformed. In other words, the federal government did not do a good job with testing. They did not do a good job developing testing. They did not do, you know, they, they centralized that whole process and things didn't go well. On the other hand, governments are kind of necessary if you're trying to create massive and coercive changes in behavior. So... There are going to be certain things that we will say in the future we're going to outsource to private. If you need something done quickly and you need as many avenues pursued as possible, you'll want that done privately. And if things are more sort of publicly oriented, you know, I think, you know, if there's if there's something that's a healthcare outcome that requires massive buy-in from society as a whole, that's going to be more on the federal side. But, you know, I don't really know what the outcome is going to be for that in terms of the specific policy framework of healthcare. But I would certainly expect there's going to be a lot of push to change that. That being said, that's not going to be controversial. Everybody's going to agree that we need to overhaul healthcare. We need to overhaul pandemic response. We need a generally a big focus on disaster response and disaster preparedness. That is something that we should expect. 
My hope, and I don't ex- actually expect this, but my hope is that one of the things that com- comes out of this is that people start paying more attention to their state and local governments. Nine times out of ten, the people that have had the most impact on you in the midst of the coronavirus are your state and local officials. Okay, federal government can establish guidelines, that's about it. Most of what you're interacting with, most of the regulations and restrictions that you're experiencing are from your state and local governments. So my hope is that people will start to pay attention to those elections and those governmental officials and and what those governments are doing. Because that's actually still the most important level of government for most things and for most people. So hopefully that is brought home in this crisis. I don't really expect it. Let me pivot for just a few minutes and talk about the foreign policy implications of this. Coronavirus is sort of a nameless, faceless entity that you can't really, you know, it's hard to pick out an enemy from that. However, if there's one actor internationally that can be held responsible for coronavirus, it is almost certainly the Chinese Communist Party. It is simply not credible to argue that China is not in large part responsible for how this went down. And the reality is most Americans, I don't think, were big fans of China before this started. Okay, People remember what happened with the NBA when the general manager of the Houston Rockets was sanctioned by the league, and it was clear that the league was getting pressured by China. People remember what happened in Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong was dominating the news cycle for a couple of weeks last August, and, and even moving forward. And we, we saw all of these, these types of protests and issues related to that. And China's a communist government. Um, but it is also a communist government that has a lot of the ugly aspects of capitalism that folks on the left don't like. You know, <laughs> they're not paying their workers a minimum wage. They're not having protections for independent trade unions. They're, if you're somebody who supports, you know, workers' rights or anything, you know, worker-oriented from the perspective of the left, China's not your favorite country if you're looking at it in any kind of objective sense of the word. They may call themselves communists, but they, you know, China's got the authoritarianism of communism. They've got the sort of secularism and some of the ideology, but they are not pro-worker by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, and by the way, China also is persecuting both Christians and Muslims and political dissidents. They are cracking down on Christian churches. They are throwing Muslims in camps in East Turkestan. They are persecuting Falun Gong members, you know, members of sort of an alternate Eastern new religious movement. So it kind of doesn't matter what your ideological orientation is in the United States. There are tons of reasons for you to not like China. And add to that the fact that, and this is starting to get some play in conservative media. I don't know the degree to which it's penetrated outside of the conservative media bubble, but add that to the fact that Taiwan, a country of 23, 24 million people, which China makes the world, like literally forces the world to pretend does not exist, has forced the WHO, the UN, all of these different organizations to pretend does not exist, has denied aid to poor countries unless they de-recognize Taiwan, right? This country is a democracy. They were a dictatorship for a while. They were sort of authoritarian one-party rule. They've now emerged as a democracy with a substantial economy, regular, peaceful transitions of power, you know, huge economic industries. And oh, by the way, they're the one country that pretty much everyone agrees has handled the coronavirus situation better than anyone else. And the WHO wasn't allowed to talk to them. (laughs) So I, I really do think that already support for China was mostly an elite project. It was a project of 
political elites who thought that through free trade you could eventually gradually lead to the opening and liberalization and democratization of China, and corporations that were making a ton of money because they saw 1.3 billion Chinese, you know, as one of my professors of political economy, Dr. Jim O'Leary at Catholic University used to say, you know, 1.3 billion new capitalists. That's what corporations were seeing. 1.3 billion new capitalists. People that were going to be you know, buying and selling and consuming goods. Well, it turns out that rather than capitalism opening China, China has corrupted capitalism. <laughs> and so, you know, I would say if you're if you're in that political sphere or you're in that corporate sphere and you've been dealing with China and you've had this cozy relationship and you've been making a lot of money from it and you've been supportive of that, probably time to start diversifying and moving away from that. Because the, if, if you don't think there's going to be intense public pressure to recalibrate our relationship with China, on the right for certain, Okay, if there was a sort of pro-China element within the Republican Party, they are going to be running for the hills. There, that that's just not an issue that any Republican politician is going to come out in, in support of at this point. But I think even on the left, I think even for sort of younger activists on the left who are really motivated by more of these sort of democratic socialist principles, principles of sort of you know we, we should care about human rights and social justice and all these types of things. It's going to be very, very uncomfortable for those folks to try to come out and say, well, we, well, Trump's saying that China's bad, so we think that China's good. Yeah, that's not going to work. And I don't think that's a smart strategy. And I, particularly if the Democrats try that and it falls flat on its face, China's not going to have a lot of friends on the Democratic side of the aisle either. So I would expect a good bit of backlash there. Otherwise, in terms of foreign policy, are we going to see a pivot away from the Middle East? Not to the degree that a lot of people are estimating, because the Middle East is always going to be a strategically vital geographic region. Because even if you're wanting to do stuff that's focused on the Pacific, you know, where are the countries in the Pacific getting their oil from? Where's China getting its oil from? It's getting from the Middle East, right? The Strait of Hormuz is a vital transshipment point to and from Asia. So the Middle East is always going to be strategically, to a certain extent, important. And I, I really don't think you're going to see this massive movement away from realignment away from the Middle East. I think that there's going to be more balance. I think it's going to be a region that's competing with East Asia, Southeast Asia, some of these other areas where China has been really active for American time and attention. But it's not going to be completely, you know, a region that's marginalized. I'm actually expecting that we're probably going to see some upheaval in the Middle East. And there could be some issues for Russia. Oil yesterday hit negative $30 per barrel, and it was dropping like a stone. It started the day, you know, below 20. It got to like $1 per barrel, and then actually fell below you know, zero. So it was, in, it was a negative cost per barrel. They're actually having to pay people to take oil. Yes, this is bad for fracking. But the U.S. fracking industry, I mean, the, you know, in, in reality, with the positions that the U.S. Has, has put in terms of unemployment and, you know, payroll, payroll taxes and stuff like that, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see loans floated to the U.S. fracking industry. I don't think that industry is going to be shut down. But if you're Russia and you're Saudi Arabia and you're some of these other countries that started this price this price war, this is going to start affecting you. Because the idea that you can just ramp up production again, or you, know, you can just stop production, go into a production freeze until the price recovers, it's going to be a long time before the price recovers to what it was pre-corona. And so that's going to have impacts on the economies of all of the oil-producing countries possibly even long-term and very, very destabilizing impacts. I would expect that in 2021, 
we're going to see some shifts in the Middle East. There's just too many pressure. There's too many pressures on Iran. Collapsing oil prices, their own total bungling of the, the coronavirus crisis, the death of Qasim Soleimani, and the degrading of their international networks from result of that, and the fact that they've been have rolling, having rolling protests since like 2015. At, at some point, something's just got to give in Iran. So maybe that doesn't happen in 2021. Maybe it takes a little bit longer than that. But they're on borrowed time, as far as I'm concerned. I think you're also going to start seeing though, some pressure on Saudi Arabia. You know, part of part of the way in which Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman consolidated power was a promise that he was going to get Saudi's economic house in order. And if this price war ends up being as detrimental to the Saudi economy as it could be, there could be major upheavals within the Saudi royal family. There could be major upheavals within Saudi Arabia. So that's another thing to be watching out for as well. One final point is that Russia bears watching. Russia is sort of trying to position itself as China's new best friend, as the one country that will stand by China when everybody else is pretty much mad at them. And so there are some real dangers in if you really start cutting off China, really start making China feel isolated. And I think that's going to happen like regardless. The problem is that that increases the likelihood that China does something dangerous or stupid. And it also increases the possibility that Russia will aid and abet them in doing something dangerous or stupid. So China and Russia are definitely countries that are going to be on the radar. Overall, I don't think that that the crisis is going to dramatically impact the U.S. position in the world. People are already starting to talk about China and Russia as great power competitors. That is certainly not going to change as a result of this. I certainly don't think in the long run China's position is going to be strengthened by this. And I, I think that there's going to be a willingness on the part of some countries to take on some temporary economic pain in order to diversify and find other economic partners who can produce things that they were previously buying from China. So in, in the long run, I don't think this strengthens China. In the short run, it's going to re- lead to some potential competition and some potential conflict with the U.S. And, and China. But ultimately, I don't think there's anything that has dramatically changed the position the U.S. has in the world. There's one possible caveat to that, and that is the U.S. has been spending a lot of money on its COVID response. And so at some point, we are going to have to address the degree to which the country is in crippling debt. I don't expect that to happen in the immediate aftermath of the crisis. But I do expect that, you know, sometime in the early 2020s, that's an issue that's going to have to be addressed because it's it's coming closer. And this crisis has not done anything to make our debt situation better. So what does that look like? How do we end up handling that? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but I do think that's going to be the, the, the clock on that issue becoming a central one for the United States may have gotten shorter as a, just as a result of the amount of money that we've had to spend on this crisis. Okay, so that's going to be a wrap for this week's episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or your other favorite podcast provider. You can find our main feed on anchor.fm. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics, Instagram at Blind Politics, Twitter at Blind P-O-L Nolte. Please do follow all of those accounts. Not sure when the next podcast episode is going to be coming out, but a reminder again that webinar for Regent is going to be the first week in May, and we will hopefully have more details on that in the show notes and in future episodes of the podcast. So with that being said, thank you as always for listening. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. 